Welcome to the Helitech Waterproofing Home Improvement Show. Presented by Suburban Leisure Center. The place with the big red chair. Celebrating 50 years. Now, Scott Mosby on the voice of St. Louis KMOX. And good morning, good Saturday. It's an off and running day. We have two hours home improvement. This is the Helitech Home Improvement Show. My name is Scott Mosby. I am at the helm for the next two hours right here in the middle of the country, middle of the dial, and all the other ways you can tune in, KMOX Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y, the Odyssey app. You can tune in, listen live, or rewind 20 seconds, any of those things. Also, check into KMOX.com if you'd like, and as well, other ways to tune in. Take me with you out to the yard, maybe some headphones as you might consider a walkabout or not as we get into the weather, uh, an eventful weather day and weekend coming upon us. Well, just throw a hurricane and watch everything hit the fan. Well, it has. Phone lines today to talk about things around your home, some of it the water, the rain, the impending amounts of rain we may get, 314-436-7900, toll free anywhere in the globe, 800-925-1120, 800-925-1120. Things to talk about today throughout the show. Uh, want to also uh, realize, I mean, keep in mind, I, I, I get it, you know, we're still in the heat of the summer, if you will, still kind of a nice day today. Fireplaces, time to think about that for the winter. Fireplaces, also, as you envision something for your life, the more time we spend around our homes, the more we spend in our kitchens, and kitchens typically have some sort of opportunity with an adjacent room to pull a wall out. So we can talk about today how to identify and remove a load-bearing wall. For those of you just thinking about it, noodling through, golly, what could our house be if this wall went or that wall? Some of the ways I'll walk you through what to look for for yourself so you know whether it's worth thinking about discussing with your spouse and uh, family or such. Also, the lower level, how to finish and remodel your basement. We'll talk about that and more because everybody's got the lower level. Perhaps yours is drier than most. The perfect opportunity for that space. So fireplaces, load-bearing wall, and finishing lower levels. 314-436-7900-800-925-1120. We have two hours. Everything we're going to talk about is really up to you. Your phones, your time, your question, your answers, your favorite products, pondering things that really are imponderable around your home. Think about it this way. And, well, this is the way I think about it. Let's put it that way. All the years that I make these house payments, you know, I, I feel like, and then I fix the house and I take care of it. Later on, as my life mobility and abilities change, you know, I, I kind of want that house to take care of me. I want a place that is fed, uh, feeds my uh, um, uh, desire to get away, to recreate uh, recreation, recreate myself, my family, enjoy myself. So think about that. As you get into those times, so if you're considering any work around your home, is it time for that house to do what you want it to do? And that's kind of the concept here, That <clears throat> things like that. Uh, my other topic is luxury. Luxury to me is when I grab a faucet and I turn it on, it works. And then when I go to the hot, it works. And when I pull out the sprayer, 
it works. That's luxury, usually in my kitchen, because there are certain things that I use every day on a recurring basis that get worn out first, and those are the repairs and things we can talk about here on KMOX. But I want you to understand that uh, luxury is different for everybody. What I really want is my house to work the way it's supposed to. You know, it's a it's a large asset. It's um, a lot of attention that I've spent over the years that I suspect you have too. Uh, so anyway, we can talk about that and more. And as you get into it, what you want out of the house may be affected by one of those walls being in the way or that uh, forever desire that, you know, I, I love fire. I just want a fireplace and I want it there. Well, can it be there? And all the places that you can put those things. So removing walls, fireplaces, lower levels, oftentimes the places for fireplaces as well. Different types, different vents. Uh, electrical fireplaces have come on very strong in the last four or five years because sometimes we just want a fireplace where you just can't get a chimney, a flue, or exhaust into it. It's like, all right, well, you know, I, I still want that ambiance. I want a little bit of heat. Uh, so there's there are choices on the market for electric fireplaces, and like everything else, you know, the more you spend, the better it looks and the better it feels, all that. So anyway, I'll carry you through some of that as we get into fireplace inspiration, because oddly enough, and those of you around the city of St. Louis, in the older parts of town, usually near the riverfront, fireplaces used to be heat. It's how we would heat the place. You heat that fireplace up, heats the stone mass. The stone mass radiates the heat out even after the fire is tuned down for the evening or whatever. But also, you find when we put gas lights in in the city of St. Louis 150 years ago, you know, that, that there were gas heater fireplaces. So many of you have fireplaces that you really can't burn wood. Probably shouldn't even burn gas anymore. But you've got this energy, this look, a, um, you know, a mantle and a firebox that sits there. And you think, you know, 365 days a year, it offers a style. It may not work uh, on the functional level, but emotionally feels good, looks good, and contributes to the feeling and look of that room. Phone lines here, 314-436-7900, 436-7900, toll-free 800-925-1120, 800-925-1120. My name is Scott Mosby. I own Mosby Building Arts. Um, actually, since uh, the early 80s, my father started the com- company in 1947, and around the 70s, he became a little bit frustrated because as remodeling became more prevalent, um, the design community really did not consider remodeling um, worthy. Uh, So it was very difficult to get an architect or a designer to do plans for, you know, a screen porch or a nice deck addition. And the deck might be multi-level, could be pretty stunning if you have a beautiful outdoors around your house outdoor living you know as you've well seen in the last 20 years is a big deal well so my father decided that you know since it's so hard to get an architect consumers don't know where to do I start with an architect do I start with a builder do I start at the building supply place so again he kind of rolled it all up into design build all in one place Design build was taking off in big commercial and industrial things where putting the design team on the construction team to where 
everybody was literally connected at the hip, if you will. Uh, and that's kind of how Mosby Building Arts has evolved. We, over the years, since the early 70s, my father, late 60s even, we are a design-build company. We have licensed architects, licensed interior designers, certified kitchen and bath designers, accessibility designers. So because everything we built was only as good as the design. And then some of the uh, quality issues that we ran into were designers not necessarily understanding products and flashing and proper um, assembly and that a, a wall could be removed. If it's a load-bearing wall, it's not a big deal. Just pull it out, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about removing load-bearing walls as we get into it. But the point being that kind of like Frank Lloyd Wright, he put them all together in one room. He didn't care whether they were designers, stonemasons, carpenters, whatever. Just put them in. When you're done, you come out and I will assess you as a complete team. I don't care if you're an architect. I don't care if you're a carpenter. And and who done it? You know, who really is responsible? You can't point at the other guy because when you're design building, you do it all. Single source accountability. And that's what is really good. So for better companies that are built to do this, that single source accountability also means I get to design the project so it's successful that when the construction comes, it actually works. Um, for I, and, and I'll take you back probably 25, 30 years. Um, you know, uh, I was working with an outside designer at the time. And uh, I said, well, how do you plan to hold up the roof? And he says, that's your problem. Uh, excuse me? What? Well, you're the builder, you know how to hold a bird. Well, yeah, but still, I may need some columns and some thing. Where are we going to put the gas pipes? We've got some ductwork in that wall. What do you do with that? So anyway, that really uh, sped up uh, what my father's vision was on design. I, and I'm telling you all about this, not, not to talk about my company. I just really believe in that because you don't have to know much other than find somebody you can work with speaks all the languages that you understand and includes you inside that team so that you're part of the design, you're part of product selection. And today with the world and the you know, minimal supply on various things from all over the world, supply selection and, and item selection, especially on appliances and such, it matters. Anyway, we'll talk about that more today on uh, the KMOX uh, Helitech Home Improvement Show. Scott Mosby, 314-436-7900, It is KMOX. This is Saturday. This is the Helitech Home Improvement Show, and I am at your service right here on KMOX. Nearly a century of informing, entertaining, and serving St. Louis. KMOX. Yeah, baby, we are back together. Home Improvement, KMOX, two full hours. Phone lines wide open for you, 314-436-7900, Seminars coming up in three weeks on September 22nd. Ten steps to a successful bathroom remodel. Do I put in a skylight? Do I put in a shower? Can I take out the tub? All the things around that as you envision a simple bathroom remodel, maybe a simple makeover, maybe just a new shower, maybe vanity, those sorts of things that you want to 
change in the bathroom, all those things you can uh, sign up for. It is a webinar, September 22nd, 1130 in the morning. You can uh, log on to the Mosby Building Arts website, mosbybuildingarts.com or callmosby.com. Let's get going on the phone lines. Fire them up. Let's see what's happening. Let's talk to my friend Tony. Hey, Tony, Scott Mosby here. Good morning. How can I help, sir? I've got a modern older house. It's in the kitchen. It's got old tile that was put on top of a hardwood floor mm-hmm. underneath that tile is like a rubberized tar paper i've got that up and then i've still got like black mastic underneath that on top of the hardwood is there yeah. a magic potion i can use to get that black mastic up off that hardwood um Yes, and uh, before I answer that direct question, I want to warn you that black adhesive is usually asphalt cement with asbestos fiber in it. There is a high probability that that black tar that you're trying to get off uh, actually is asbestos and is best removed by a professional abatement company because something like six parts per billion fibers is uh, above the the safe limit for you and me as humans so you know six fibers out of a billion is is not much so anyway i would suggest you might test that for um uh, uh asbestos number one um and the tar paper that you describe is basically a, a membrane it, it's kind of a way that hardwood floor has a whole bunch of joints in it when the temperature changes or the humidity changes which does in st louis quite a bit um all of those little boards move at a different rate and so those joints between the hardwood floor is what telegraphs through and why they have put down this pre-membrane or kind of a separator isolator before they put down the uh, tile floor so anyway just be aware uh, that may be better done professionally because uh, even if it's um, not the the way to do that is pretty much scrape as much of it off that stuff is like iron so sometimes it's a heat gun sometimes it is a solvent applied to soften that black stuff scrape it up uh, the good news is you can scrape it up it doesn't necessarily make the fibers airborne uh, so actually having a pro do it they have methods to do that and when you get all finished uh, you know, I guess my question for you is, what are you going to do uh, when you get that hardwood floor um, cleaned up? We're just going to refinish it. Uh, be careful. Uh, are there nails? Um, was there a piece of plywood under on top of that yet? No. Ooh, you may be in pretty good stead. Uh, the issue then, you have to sand that material, that floor, uh, and likely the the point being is that black asphalt cement that may have asbestos in it digs really deep it goes down into the pores of that likely oak hardwood floor so sometimes you just have to sand a lot of that floor off to get rid of the black speckles down in the pores of that wood Uh, i will tell you that at mosby building arts when we're tasked to do that i will say that 90 percent of the time even if we try to save the floor we're going to replace that hardwood floor um, by either pulling it out and putting in new, you know, site finished sand on site and stain and finish it in place. Just because 
it doesn't look right when we're done. When we get down to the old floor, sometimes there's a reason they covered it up. They may have already refinished that floor twice, which means there's no thickness left between the tongue and the groove. So sanding right. it one more time means you just make a splitter material. So be careful. You're you're in the big, big leagues of, of floors. Okay. All right. <laughs> Hope I didn't blow you away there, Mr. Tony, but uh, you you are playing in a big game. And just be open. At least start having the conversation now. And that's kind of where design is so important to me, that having that conversation. Okay, Tony, so we're going to try and save this floor. You you need to be prepared to buy new hardwood floor when we get the hole. Oh, I don't. I'm trying to save money doing this. It's like, well, if you're saving money, there might be a different strategy rather than trying to un- uncover the old hard. You know, on and on and on. So, I just want you and your sweetie or, or uh, to have that conversation of like, okay, if we do this, we may wind up putting extra money into this wood floor. Right now, did they used to use like, like I want to say white gas when they refinished old hardwood floors? Kind of yes. Uh, when the sa- when the sand uh, sandings process came, up, it made really fine s- sawdust, and they would actually add kind of a white gas, a solvent that reactivates the sap in that sawdust, and they would use that highly um, solvent material, but it would make a cream paste out of sand uh, sanded sawdust, and then they'd just trowel that stuff into the joints, and that's what would fill between the joints and, you know, the, the pores of the wood and the nail holes and all that, and it happened to be the perfect color because it's from the actual wood floor itself. So, yeah, you bet. That's, you're exactly correct. And, uh, and I've seen it done the old way with some of the new acrylic modified fillers. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what, when you apply the stain to a sand, sanded sawdust filled floor, you can't find the joints because it all takes the stain perfectly. Whereas if you do a cream filler, you have to pick the right color filler. It will take the stain a little bit, but not as perfectly as the old sawdust. Okay. Yeah. All right, then. Thank you very much. And that's that's kind of why I like the old school. Uh, I, I'm a big proponent of hardwood floors, especially in kitchens for adults, you know, unless you have kids or grandkids spilling gallon milks and juice and all. Man, it's a soft floor. It's a beautiful floor. It, it has no hard uh, definition between the family room. You know, I mean, it just flows and, and it's just a beautiful and joint uh, accessible uh, for me, you know, later years, it, it's comfortable on my ankles and knees and hips. So it's it's a good choice. Thank you very okay. much. All right, Tony, take care, brother. 314-436-7900-800-925-1120. Uh, some things are um, timeless. And I was of the age and time when carpet came out. And uh, so just a little bit before my time, the thing was carpet is the bomb. It is the coolest new floor. We Everybody's got hardwood floors. Let's get rid of that old stuff. I'm tired of the hardwood. So they put carpet over it. Some people put tile because, you know, we're in Missouri and Illinois. Well, red oak and white oak and oak and hardwood uh, lumber is everywhere. It is one of the most green building materials we can use because it grows in our backyard for heaven's sake so there's no shipping or any of that stuff so you know when you get to that level 
hardwood floor is just a good, good thing. Well, man, we covered those things up with carpet, um, even some of the beautiful wood paneling. Well, we want to paint that out and change the color. Wow, we, we covered up some beautiful uh, workmanship and building materials in the 60s and 70s. So anyway, that and more. I'm getting up on my stump here. Let's uh, see what's happening on the phone lines here and talk to my friend Mason. Hey, Mason, good morning. Welcome to KMOX. How can I help? Good morning, Scott. Uh, listen, I have a severe condensation problem on my coal air ducts. I have rental property. It's a second-floor unit. It's all-electric with an air handler. And I have consulted with HVAC technicians. I run the gamut. Naturally, the first conclusion I ran was I came to that I needed to insulate the ducts, which I did with uh, an aluminum-type coating that had to self-adhesive back. Still, uh, my ducts are sweating profusely, okay? Uh, I had an HVAC uh, technician come out. He probed the ducts to make sure... That, you know, and he felt that there was some type of restriction. He went up, checked with the tenant to see if any of her her uh, 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 vents were closed, you know, causing a buildup. That was not the case. So I'm kind of at my wits' end. I've Googled it, every, you know, and obviously the concept of condensation is cold meets warm. But I, I don't know what the situation is at this point. Uh, where is your ductwork? Uh, is it in an unconditioned attic, or is it inside the conditioned space? Well, it's it's in the conditioned space in the basement. And keep in mind, there are three other units that are working simultaneously. So the, right now, my basement is the coldest place in town with yeah. all of those units working. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, here's what's cooking. It's also the highest humidity place in your house. Uh, so the condensation on that ductwork, as long as you have high humidity and cold surfaces, so you're kind of the worst of both worlds, your coldest air coming out of that air, air conditioner, air handler is in the basement because it blows up. So the first 30 feet of ductwork trunk line down in the basement for all three of those units is right there. The wettest place in your basement is also, or the wettest place in your house is the basement just because it's, it's, it just is. And it's, it's an old uh, building probably. So my point being is running a dehumidifier and a fan because you have to be perfect. And we used to get into this with ductwork up in the attic. Well, when you're insulating duct, you have to insulate every centimeter of it because any piece of metal, any hanger, any nail that gets cold through that ductwork will condense and drip uh, or you drop the humidity in the basement you dry that place out so much that it raises the dew point to you know to where this you basically you have to get colder than 74 degrees instead of colder than uh, you know 84 degrees so the idea is you can either raise the temperature of that metal ductwork which means don't run the air conditioning not an option or you drop the humidity in the ambient air that touches that ductwork. And so if it's 10% relative humidity, like out in a desert somewhere, that air just doesn't drip. There's no moisture in that stuff. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Well, let me just let me just uh, mention this. As we speak, okay, I do have a dehumidifier running. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, no, I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, I don't have a gauge to determine what my my humidity is in the basement, you know. 
But as we speak, I'm continuing to run it 24-7, and I'm well, still getting sweating through that duct. Well, that's the difference between a truck engine and a car engine. You may need two or three of those things, and you may need a fan, you know, just a box, $10, $15 window, just to move the air around because, you know, that basement floor is a hydrator. The foundation continues to bring moisture through that wall. It, you know, it's basically a big limestone filter for moisture. So mm-hmm. just I think you're on the right path, but if it's really important you to stop, to drop that humidity, um, I, I, would de- I would go at it with the dehumidifier uh, it, because you've done, you know, insulating the duct, which means isolating the metal from that uh, moist air. So right. it's more isolating um, than insulating. And you have to almost spray foam it to get everything covered, which is, you know, very costly. And you have to be perfect at it. If you miss the place on top of the duct, it still sweats. Right, right, right. Obviously, yeah, because when they put it in, it was tight to the ducts, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. What are you going to do with that? Yeah, yeah. And, and interestingly, Scott, this has only been a phenomenon over the last two years. So I, I just have no explanation for it. I've had the building for close to 17 years, and I've never had a sweating problem like this before. And the only reason I really noticed it is because I moved my office to the basement, and I had tools up under it. And, I mean, it was I had to get a bucket in certain spots to catch the drippage, you know. So I don't know. Well, I, uh, number next thing I might do is put some sort of a moisture control, like a dry lock on the foundation. If you, if it's raw concrete, if it's been painted before, the dry lock won't, you know, do you any good on that. But my point is, I think you're on the right path here, Mason. Just turn up the volume, get two or three dehumidifiers and a fan, and blow it around, because I don't think you'll ever isolate that ductwork from that air in the basement without pulling it all down and starting all over. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, all right. Well, no, that that gives me a good uh, point to start from because I do have a couple of box fans or whatever. So we'll go from there, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in this case, I think less is more. It's a, actually a fairly affordable way. And make sure those dehumidifiers continuously drain. So, you know, cut the hole in that pan and hook up that hose and make sure those things drain and run as much as they want. Gotcha. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, Mason, good question. Thank you. All right. Home Improvement, Scott Mosby, KMOX. Take a short break here. and uh, yeah, Keep in mind, we've got two hours today, lots of things happening. So tune in, 314-436-7900, Scott Mosby, I'll be right back. Oh, yeah. Dancing in the studio here, backing up across the... Uh, never mind. This is radio. Oh, yeah, this is radio. No visuals. All right, let's go talk to my friend Paul and see what's cooking. Hey, Paul, good morning. Welcome to KMOX. How can I help you, my friend? Hi, Scott. How are you today? Fantabulous. Hey, um, I had a new roof put on my home, and they installed ridge vents. Okay. And I'd like to know what I'm supposed to do with the uh, gable vents. My soffits are vented. They has the cardboard um, that, you know, prevents the insulation from falling down into the soffits in the attics. Yeah. And I get conflicting answers on what to do. Um, what should I do? Are, do you have enough vent between your soffit vents and your now ridge vent? Do you have enough cubic feet per minute? Has anybody done the calculation to say you're good with that? You have enough ventilation? No. 
Okay, no. that's. Uh, I tell you what, go online and look. There are some online calculators that can tell you by basically square feet of the house, pitch of the roof, how many square, you know, how many cubic feet of holes you need in the roof. Basically, the the soffit vents, those things in the overhang, as well as the the uh, ridge vent, those are the two that qualify. You're supposed to have about sixty percent of your vent space low as intake and 40% high because, you know, the hot uh, sun, uh, winter and summer will make that uh, ridge vent ventilate and exhaust very quickly. Uh, so the only time we keep those gable end vents is when we're grotesquely underventilated, when we don't have enough holes. Because what happens is uh, if you don't have enough um, inlet low soffit venting then the air just gets sucked in up at the two existing gable vents or however many you have and it goes right up through the ridge vent and so you super ventilate the top six feet of your attic well that's not down by the insulation and that doesn't cool off your attic or dry it out it just doesn't right. work so and, the rea- well, you're I'm, asking the right question you knew you knew half of the answer by asking the question so how can i help right. you next okay i uh I know on the main roof, there was four of those round vents, and they were covered up. That's what the main roof had. Then they put in the ridge vent all the way across that. It probably runs about 60 feet or so, and okay. it's the large ridge vent, the taller one, not the narrow, okay, nice. flat one. Yeah. And I, um, I'll look at that website. What is it? Do you know? I, I forget the name, but it, uh, it's, uh, I think... Um, it's by one of the ridge vent manufacturers, and I'm, I'm, ridge vent is like Keds or Kleenex. It's a, I'm using that generically, uh, but I just do just GAF. Uh, well, GF, yeah, GIF has one. There, it's also, I mean, they're trying to educate their roofers, but it's primarily hmm. um, more the uh, consumers doing it because when the roofer doesn't, you know, tell. I mean, basically, take off the roof, put on ridge vent. It's good stuff. You're you're good. Well, I don't know. So, right. how many horsepower do you need in your car? I don't know. Well, I'm I'm going to tow this big block well, of, you know, on you go. There's a lot of homes in my subdivision that had roofs put on, and and 99% of them have ridge vents now. And I just yeah. wonder, you know, if they were towed anything. But I'll I'll look into it. I will tell you that at Mosby Building Arts, when we put up ridge vent or it's part of a project, 80, 85 percent of the time we block those gable end vents because the math right. just doesn't, you know, you, it's just, it, 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 you put extra money into the ridge vent and then it works less effectively because you didn't block those gables. So basically, you know, you're spending more to get less. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, and, and you remember, you're go- if you're adding ventilation and there's not enough, generally add it low to the overhang of your house. Okay. All right. All right. Okay, Paul, good All luck, right, my well. friend. Okay, thank you very much. You Have bet. a good day. Take care. Home improvements, Scott Mosby KMAX, very important. I'm going to get into this in hour two as well because this is a big deal. It's bigger than we know. Uh, I'm going to take a short pause, get back on. I'm a little windy today, Scott Mosby, and I'll promise you to come right back after this. This is the Helitech Waterproofing Home Improvement Show. Presented by Suburban Leisure Center, the place with the big red chair, celebrating 50 years. Now, Scott Mosby on the voice of St. Louis KMOX. Back together, wowzer. Let's see what's cooking here, and let's get to my friend Jeff. Hey, Jeff, thanks for waiting on the line. How can I help you this fine morning on KMOX? Yes, 
Sir, I have a question for you. I'm going to try to muddle through this because I'm not in the business. So anyway, I'm talking about new construction now. Okay. Uh, I'm going to have a, a deck built on the new construction, and the deck is going to be, the roof is going to be tied into the, if you will, the trusses of the roof of the home itself. Okay. It's going to be perpendicular, of course, to the uh, ridge of the house. And okay. I'm just wondering if that's considered a load-bearing uh, structure, that, that roof out over the deck. And then I have one more question for you, and I'm just, it's kind of related, but and how are the lumber prices doing these days? Is it trending in the right direction? I'm going to hang up and, and listen to you, unless you have any specific question for me. No, good question, Jeff. You teed me up really good. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now, number one, lumber. Lumber was just under $500, 1,000 board feet, which means that one board foot is about 50 cents a foot. So that's down from... a board foot. My normal lumber price is somewhere around $380 to $400 per thousand board feet. And I watch the the, uh, commodity prices on that because it's, it's directly related. So I'm telling you that lumber now is getting down into a reasonable place and the price that lumber you're going to pay is still very high because people like me, when we saw lumber skyrocket and then we couldn't get it, we bought extra. And when we tried to stock up, including the lumber yards, the big box stores, all this, all these guys that are consumers of lumber, we freaked out and we bought too much of the stuff, sending the price even higher. And that's how we got into the obscenity elevations of, whoa, you're nuts. So the point being is that $500 price or 495 whatever it was on yesterday when I last looked, that's for lumber being delivered two months out, three months out. So that's for lumber with an October, November future date. So the point being is there's still a glut of really expensive lumber there, and we're still paying elevated prices for lumber. So as that relates to price of lumber, Jeff, it's still high. You're still going to have troubles with builders and contractors because we're basically it's first in, first out. So whatever the guy bought the last bit of lumber from, you know, the cheapest price, he's selling that board for what he paid for that board not the recent price so anyway it's trending in a logical good place uh that and and get to the load bearing of your deck the wall of the house over the foundation is a load bearing wall for the wall of the house and then out furthest from that wall out where maybe the gable or the hip the posts would be for your covered deck roof those those two columns or four columns, whatever, that is also a load-bearing roof. So basically, there will be, uh, the load will be distributed partially to that foundation and sometimes on top of the trusses or roof framing. Um, but that whole thing, so long and the short of it is, on your roof deck, basically all three walls will be load-bearing. The sides where trusses probably bear left and right, and now where you're looking at the gable or the triangle on the end, that is the main one that actually carries those structures too. So the columns out there 
are what will carry the beams on the two sides and therefore you can't really remove anything you know uh, all three walls even with a gable roof and I'm, I'm super um, summarizing here uh, generalizing a bit all three of those are load-bearing because beams will be on the side and the columns are usually out at the end so uh, you, for general principles um, all of that is load-bearing and by the way your footings will be larger too because uh, for example here's how the design community looks at it okay I've got a deck my deck can have a whole bunch of snow and ice on it so I'm going to design that for 40 pounds per square foot so every square foot is going to have design for 40 pounds so just keep that in mind um, and then when you put a roof on it you add another 30 or 40 so those columns will now carry 80 pounds Scott Mosby home improvement back for more in hour two Welcome to the Helitech Waterproofing Home Improvement Show. Presented by Suburban Leisure Center. The place with the big red chair, celebrating 50 years. Now, Scott Mosby on the voice of St. Louis KMOX. All right, back together, lunchtime, bean time, top of the hour, center of the country, center of the dial, center of the day. This is University of KMOX. I am Scott Mosby at your service right here on the Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Lots of things happening. Rain, uh, certainly, if you're not wet now, you will be soon. Uh, if you can hear my voice, we're kind of in that, uh, you know, uh, post-hurricane spin of wet weather as it drives up through the center part of the country. Lots of things happening east coast and here. All these things are pertinent to this Helitech Home Improvement Show because uh, you may be tired of hearing me talk about moisture and water and all that, but my gosh, during times like this, you can understand what the building community and industry focuses on and why this is an important issue because if you've got a roof leak or a siding leak or the top of your window gets wet and you can't quite figure it out um, it's it, it just kind of is what it is it is the technology training and trade skills this being Labor Day so as we have a dwindling population of uh, young people in our country there are fewer and fewer people to train for any and all jobs so uh, if you're really looking for a career in construction this is the time to look and frankly, if you are uh, someone who uh, considers himself exceptional, uh, then I invite you to come find our company, Mosby Building Arts, because if you're looking for a career, a place to spend your life, uh, then this is the place. Um, if you're looking for a job, then kind of any place will do. But if you're really looking for a home and a place, then that's us. So uh, check it out on the website, mosbybuildingarts.com or callmosby.com. However, back to the moisture and back to some of the questions we had in the first hour. I want to summarize the first hour because it was a notable group of questions. Tony started us off with uh, taking kitchen tile off of his hardwood floor in an older home, and he ran into black asphalt adhesive uh, over the hardwood floor and my point for re uh, bringing this up for uh, talking about this again is that black adhesive was usually laced very common to find asbestos fibers in that black at so not only are you running into black asphalt you know basically tar being used to stick down the tile and the uh, backing for the tile 
it was reinforced with the microfiber, the miracle fiber of the day, asbestos. Uh, then we got into heating and cooling and HVAC and condensation. And Mason had a great question that his ductwork was dripping. And for those of you uh, that have, I mean, right now in St. Louis, humidity is very high. When it's raining, then we have this super hydrator called raindrops falling through the air, makes the air very wet or very humid on a relative basis called relative humidity. So there's a lot of moisture hanging in the air. Then down in the basement where the ductwork is coldest in the entire house because that's right where it comes out of the air conditioning and the air handler. So the first 20-30 feet of metal on the top of a furnace air conditioner air handler, that's the coldest metal. Well, cold surface, high humidity, iced tea glass outside on the patio, that's where the condensation is on the outside of that can of pop your soda, uh, condensation on the outside of that iced tea glass, whatever. It is. The point being is that cold metal and high humidity in Mason's basement is causing that. So either you have to isolate completely, perfectly, no errors, cover the metal with an insulation or drop the humidity in the existing ambient air, meaning dry out the air in the basement. Uh, and that, you know, keep in mind the basement floor and the foundation walls both allow moisture to migrate through. So you have this ever more humid environment that you really have to super dehumidify to dry it out. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that out. Uh, let's get right to the phone lines here. Uh, 314-436-7900, toll free anywhere on the world. My name is Scott Mosby. I own Mosby Building Arts. My day job, I love it. Um, I, I, I still enjoy it. I love helping people here on CamoX and my day job at Mosby. And frankly, mostly at parties, I'm still like, Scott, I heard you what you said on the radio last week. But, it, you know, is that really true? It's like, yeah, that's really true. So uh, anyway, I love serving in all the hats and was raised by my father and mother to be just that. I have a brother and two sisters just as helpful. Uh, 314-436-7900-800-925-1120. Follow me on Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y. That's an application on your smartphone. You just press that thing and you look for KMOX and then you look for weekend shows, do a search for Helitech, a search for Mosby, typically come right up and you can listen to me all the time. Uh, Let's go to the phone lines here. I've got some good questions. Let's get to Doug. Hey, Doug, good afternoon. Welcome to lunch on KMOX, my friend. How can I help you this fine day yes hello doug are you there yes you have me i had a walk-in tub installed last year during the Mm -hmm. winter and um, we noticed we've got a 50 gallon water heater that's about eight years old it's gas and we noticed that when you're filling the tub towards the end of the fill cycle we're running out of hot water now I'm I'm debating over putting in a uh, inline one of the larger inline 120 volt uh, uh, demand units, mm-hmm. and would that be smart to put this, this the service lines going to this tub only go to this tub they don't go anyplace else in that bathroom uh, would it would it hurt to put that on the cold water line or just go ahead and put it on the hot water line and just heat the water more. Um. 
when you say an inline uh, filter, does that or inline heater, does that continually heat the existing water already in the tub? Or are you talking about the sli- supply pipe coming? The, the supply line coming in. Uh, I would boost it on the hot water sign just so you, you know, otherwise you're going to have hot water coming out your cold water on that tub yeah. as well. So, so keep it keep it simple. But I do like the idea of an on-demand 120 volt. Did you misspeak where you were thinking a 220 volt? No, no, no. They they have 120 volt ones or they're lower demand, but uh, it's one of those things since I'm going to be heating water that's coming through. Uh, that's already warm, uh, it would just go ahead and heat it up even more. Well, here here's the reality. Um, once you, uh, Every water heater is about 75% efficient. So if you've got 50 gallons of water that is hot, by the time you draw that down 38 gallons out of it, the hot water's gone, and now the new cold water coming into that water tank in the hot water heater is cold. So you're you're you only get three quarters of the capacity of your water heater for hot water. So you get 38 gallons of hot water, um, and you get an older water heater, and it delivers less than the 50 because of the lime buildup and minerals and all of that. Um, my my point being that, and it's one of my complaints about walk-in tubs is, you know, you sit in the tub, you drain the water heater, all of a sudden that, you know, warm water around the bladder, whoops, I need to get up and go to the bathroom. Well, there's no <laughs> hot water to refill that tub. You nailed that too, yeah. Well, it, I mean, we do a lot of accessible uh, improvements at Mosby, and very seldom do we put in walk-in tubs because of that issue. The older I get, the more active my bladder is, so and unpredictable. So that's one of the issues that we have around those tubs. They are really nice when they, but now you're t- when you're talking the real price of a walk-in tub, that's another water. I mean, you're already dealing it right here. You're having to buy another bigger booster water supply to get the water warm enough to use. So, so anyway. go ahead. If I go ahead and do this, just go ahead and put it on the hot water side anyway. Yes, and there 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 will be specifications for your inline one twenty volt heater, and it will uh, heat the delta. So it it'll take. You need to provide the inlet temperature, which might be 90 degrees or 95 or whatever it is, and then it, it will boost a delta, so increase the temperature in a half-inch supply line or three-quarter inch supply line. The point is, is all a water heater does is take a start temperature and deliver a higher outlet temperature. So your inline water heater will have a delta or rating, and all it is is how many degrees um, of temperature they can add at a pressure and a size of pipe you follow kind of like kind of like horsepower rating on an engine well uh, home depot and lowe's both sell these uh, demand juice units like i'm looking at and they are 120 volt uh, units because that's one of the things i'm checking for because i'm um, i'm 30 foot away from the water water heater when I'm drawing this water out. And the, yeah. and this hot water line is insulated. I've got it wrapped with the foam insulation and taped and everything else. But but go ahead and put the uh, heater on the hot water side. Yes, yes. And, and don't expect much because you don't get a whole lot of delta or temperature boost out of a 120-volt electric yeah. water heater. Yeah. 
and it will be. Go to the manufacturer's website and look up that model number and find out what the temperature boost is before you do this. And, and be aware that putting that boost water heater on, you still need a floor drain close by or an overflow method because the building code still considers it a tanked water heater. Oh, okay. All right. Well, there's the drain from the tubs right there. Perfect. Okay. Okay. I thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Okie doke. Take care, Doug. Home Improvement, Scott Mosby, KMOX. Stay tuned. One more hour here as we get up to the 1 o'clock hour on KMOX. I'll be right back after this. This is the Helotech Waterproofing Home Improvement Show. Presented by Suburban Leisure Center. The place with the big red chair. Celebrating 50 years. Now, Scott Mosby on the voice of St. Louis KMOX. All right, Scott Mosby here. Since we're talking about water heaters, I'm going to go talk to my friend Jeff and see what's happening here. Jeff, good afternoon. Welcome to KMOX. How can I help you on this fine wet day? Hello, Scott. Uh, Last week, my wife called in. Uh, We had this issue with the sediment and sanding material coming through our faucet in the bathtubs only. So each time I would drain this water heater, uh, it would come through. And I would catch it in this net. And I must have drained this thing five, six times. But since that time, nothing has been coming out in the bathtub. The bathtub is clear. Everything is clear. My question is, and I'm getting different ways to do this, what is the best way to drain the water heater? Man, you're doing it. Frankly, the best way, I typically just hook up a garden hose to the drain on the bottom of the water heater. So all I'm trying to do is let the water out. Um, At that point, uh, I keep everything turned on. I don't turn the water off to the water heater. I don't need to drop this whole thing down. What I want to do is induce a swirl. If I could take my garden hose and stuff it on the inside of that a water tank, that hot water heater, and get that sand on the bottom of the uh, tank to swirl up in suspension, it will actually carry out that hose. So I un- I open the drain on the bottom of the water heater. I leave the cold water on um, and, and follow me here. I typically, on, on my water heater, I have a lever on it. So it's a fast on off. It's, it's not a gate valve. It's a ball valve. So I can spray that. So I'll shut the water off for a minute, just for about five or six seconds, and then turn it on full force. What I'm trying to do is spray spray that water in the bottom of the water heater and try and get that sand worked up into the suspension of water and then drain it out. I'll do that, golly, um, I guess for 15, 20 minutes. Uh, That's the best way to clean the sediment out, which is different than draining the water heater. So I I would not turn anything off. I would just open up the little valve and let it go. Uh, yeah, you need to be a little bit more actively involved in that, but that generally is it because what happens is as the water comes out on the bottom, the pressure lowers and then your cold water from the top actually starts spraying into the water tank and there's a dip tube, which means that that water actually is blown into the tank almost down at the bottom. It doesn't just drop in from the top. Uh, It actually has what's called a dip tube, a big plastic a uh, plastic tube that go, that's usually about four feet long goes all the way down, you know, within mm-hmm. eight inches of the bottom of the tank. So it's delivering that spray right where I want that sand, you know, moving. 
So that I typically do that, and when I'm curious whether I've got enough, just like your netting, your filter, I'll basically drain it into a five-gallon bucket, which is on the side, so that it just keeps spilling over. But I either look at what's in the bottom of the bucket, or if I've got a filter fabric, then you know I'd look in there as well. But you'll get a right, sense. We'll see. We were we were contemplating on getting a new water heater, which which she mentioned last week. But I'm thinking yeah. if I'm not getting anything in my bathtub, if my bathtub is clear, there's no sediment, no sand, I see no reason to get a new water heater. Well, I'm gonna. What I told your wife was, even if you're gonna get a new water heater, don't do it for a year. Okay. You see what I mean? But which is the same mm-hmm. logic you're following. So if you're not getting it into the into the shower or tub, that doesn't mean you're not getting it into your tank. It you it just means you cleaned out your tank pretty well and it's just bringing in new sand. So if if you've got a water supply main break, uh it that that um mineral deposit is going to keep coming to your house for the next 4 to 6 months smaller mm-hmm. amounts but you know it just i'd rather mess up an old worn out tank than a brand new one and and the the sediment will come to a new tank just as well as an old tank so let's just keep right. the one we've got we were we were also wanting to put in a whole house water filter system also in case we do have another break it'll catch this stuff before it hits the water heater yeah, I'd wait on that for a few months, too, because for, it will work. The problem is if you're getting copious amounts of sand coming in still now, you're just going to be changing those whole house water filters every week, you know, mm-hmm. and however much mm-hmm. they are. So so be careful what you ask for. You just might get it because those yeah. whole house water filters, they'll plug up pretty fast, even though they take a lot of water to do it. You know, and then you lose your pressure, you lose your flow. It's like, oh, I have to go spend, you know, change another $50 water filter. You know, right, you do that right. about five times in a month and you start thinking about other ways okay so basically i don't touch any water don't shut it off i just let it go and it'll refurbish itself and clean itself out right right because that is all giving you further data you know you clean this water tank out a couple of times and nothing comes out of that hose it's like, well, maybe it's time, you know, maybe I can put that filter on now. You know, mm-hmm. I'm actually, fil- otherwise you're just going to filter a uh, a very um, um, big load of sand being delivered to your house. So I'd rather find out what I'm up against because now you're assessing what the water main is delivering to you as opposed to, well, now I have what I want, which is clean water. But now, you know, since I'm getting such big loads of sand every day, you know, I'm I'm buying a whole bunch of filters. I'd rather just let the stuff come into my old water heater, drain it out, see what I've got. Once I think I've got a stable condition, then I would invest in water heater, water filter, whatever. But, I mean, what if four months from now you're still pulling sand out of that water heater? You know that. Yeah, well, it's it's right now. It's not much. It's very very minimal. But it's yeah. you know it's just there. But it's not much. Yeah. Okay. And and, great. and frankly, a month from now, if you're in that same not not much, then I'd do whatever you want to you know, change your water heater. But I I don't think you need if you're you're cleaning it out this this thoroughly, man. That's a pretty good water heater. I you know that and a yeah. water filter, you'll be good to go. Great, great. Okay, Scott, I appreciate your help. Good question, Jeff. Thanks. This is uh right. this doesn't come up much, but for the people who get the sediment, they get a lot of sediment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, you helped me a lot, Scott. I appreciate it. Good luck, sir. Bye now. Thank you. Home Improvement, Scott Mosby KMOX. There's a lot of experience dancing with the devil on some of these things. So uh, uh, being the guy on the radio, 
we kind of and, and being you know I'm part of a team that likes figuring stuff out, so we dig the chili out of these kind of problems. It's like oh yeah, let's go figure this one out. So again, and and that's kind of the culture in the office as well when we've got a design or a challenge you know out come the coffee cups up on the screen comes a bunch of pictures somebody presents and away we go it's like well that's not going to work well sure it is why not well why will it well and back and forth you go so we we're just kind of made that way and kind of love that stuff and um and that pretty much describes mosby building arts if you if you aren't going to bring your mind to work probably not a good place for you but if you love figuring things out and staying awake and really delivering good effective things this is a place where you can learn a ton really um master your craft and uh go to the head of your class if you will as well as work with really good customers and clients that care about getting that so it's a cool place to work i love it uh i'm a little biased i'll tell you that a 314-436-7900-800-925-1120 bring it on we've got time for questions you're kind of stuck in the rain what are you doing anyway give me a call 314-436-7900-800-925-1120 bring it on right here on kmox this is the Helitech Waterproofing Home Improvement Show. Presented by Suburban Leisure Center. The place with the big red chair. Celebrating 50 years. Now, Scott Mosby on the voice of St. Louis KMOX. And indeed, welcome back. Home Improvement, Scott Mosby. So many things to talk about. Uh, one being, should you finish or remodel your basement? Is that a good place for livable space? Can I add a fireplace down there? What does it cost relative to other parts? parts of room additions and such is it uh something i need heating and cooling for uh finish or remodel your basement and one of the blogs and actually one of the seminars coming up here i think uh in a way in a while three weeks from now 10 steps to the successful bathroom remodel september 22nd this is a webinar on wednesday september 22nd uh, starts at 11:30, middle of the day. You do need to sign up for it. Uh, all always valuable and people available to answer questions for you there as well. Uh, phone lines open and going 314-436-7900-800-925-1120. I love this stuff. I can't help myself. I love these questions. I love helping you. I love being part of CamoX and the family of CamoX. It's all fun and something valuable to me. Next up, let's go talk to my friend Randy and see what's happening randy good afternoon welcome to camlex how can i help sir well hello scott so i have a 1960s house all brick the garage was constructed without sheeting on the outside of the frame wall but it does have half inch plywood on the inside so now i'm removing the plywood to rewire the garage but i want to know the best way to insulate this uh, considering there's no sheeting and separation from what could be wet brick on the inside. Wow. Well, there, what is on the outside of that frame wall? I, I assume this is uh, brick veneer. Has a two yes. by four wall. Okay. Two by four wall, and so you you peel away the plywood on the inside, and uh, you see the backside of the brick. Holy smokes! Uh, where are you seeing this? What part of the house? It's only the garage. Okay, okay, the that makes more house, sense. The rest of the house had sheeting. It was uh, Celotex. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you were at the front. That house was built at the front end of the save the energy thing. So we started using foam as sheathing. However, uh, it, the foam sheathing, which is insulation, doesn't provide any structural value. So at, at corners, we still used to put plywood on uh, back in the 60s, not OSB, but plywood to keep the rack. So this whole house would stand up. Uh, so you've got plywood on the inside wall, brick that's interesting on the outside um i would blow insulation into that the problem being that you're going to fill up the entire um cavity and behind that brick sheathing or no sheathing there still is movement for um uh, moisture and it will get wet in that wall and it will drain um you know what uh randy I would not blow anything into that wall cavity at all. I would apply interior surface foam of either like a Celotex, a, a, um, a high R foam or, or a styrofoam type material in whatever thickness you can handle, inch and a half or two. The, you will be required to cover it with fire code drywall on some of those, at least on the wall that separates the house and the garage and a ceiling if you have it open to the attic and the attic all the way open across the house. But I would stay out of that whole moisture thing, that whole cavity. Uh, I would recommend surface interior applied insulation. Okay. You follow, you follow me there and why? Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's my concern is that the backside of that brick would be wet and would want to wick into, say, a fiberglass or a, a it any would. kind of a, yes. And, and it would. It, it, and it would, even if you in, injected kind of a foam material, a minimally expansive foam, the, you're just, you're, there are just a lot of good things that come from that air cavity inside those stud behind that brick. And, you know, kudos to the masonry industry in this part of the country. They understood that moisture migration behind brick long, long time ago, which is why there's always been, even with exterior sheathing, that half inch, five eighths, sometimes three quarters inch that the brick veneer would set away from the structure to allow that moisture to move. So, you know, these brick guys have been getting it right for a long time around here. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you very much, and you have a nice day. Uh, before you go, Randy, do you have any windows or doors? Because that would affect the foam. Uh, I wouldn't worry about insulating between the house uh, because that's already a warm wall on the other side. But any exterior walls, I would put that foam on. And, and do make sure, because when that stuff uh, catches on fire, which we don't want to do, but there's some pretty noxious fumes, you know, nasty fumes and smoke that comes from that. So you really do need to cover it with a drywall skin. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there are two windows um, out there. but. Yeah. Um, so you pull your trim off those windows, add a jam extension equal to the thickness of your insulation, and then you reapply your trim over the top of the drywall. You follow, that's why I asked on that, because it's your penetrations, your windows and doors, uh, where that wall gets thicker that you have to manage. Okay. Good question. Right. Thanks for Very asking. Very good. All right. Take care, right. Andy. Bye now. Bye. Home improvement, Scott Mosby. So uh, that is a high value question. There's a there's a whole lot of um, uh, mistakes. There's a whole lot of pain 
that has happened before we understood all this moisture management um, that I talk about here and why it's so important for this training voice, you know, in my world, both as part of our industry, part of my company, and part of our community, which I'm part of right now, uh, making sure people understand that and the consequences of it. Kudos to Randy, who had enough knowledge to ask that question it's like this is different i better find out and the consequence that is that he just leaves well enough alone everything inside that wall that's been working for years uh the reality is most of those 1960s houses were built pretty well structurally as well as moisture um and and when we started air conditioning spaces that's when we started messing things up with condensation anyway going to take a short pause here on kmox I'm, i've got to stop talking and uh get back to business on University of KMOX. Stay tuned. More coming up here on 1120 KMOX. This is the Helitech Waterproofing Home Improvement Show. Presented by Suburban Leisure Center. The place with the big red chair celebrating 50 years. Now, Scott Mosby on the voice of St. Louis KMOX. All right, back together here. Home Improvement. See if we can wrap up. We've got a few more callers here going. Let's go talk to my friend Don. Don, good afternoon. How can I help you on this wet Saturday in the middle of the country here? Oh, I love this soggy day. Thank you for the call. (laughs) Uh, You're welcome. I I have a question on uh, furnace air filters. Yeah. Um, I've been very religious in the past of changing my air filter every three months. That's what my father taught me, and I always use the, the simple uh, schedule of January 1st, April 1st, July 1st. Mm-hmm. That was very simple. Yep. Recently, I bought a, uh, a electronic thermostat, and it mm-hmm. has within it a, a reminder to tell you when to replace your filter, which mm-hmm. is wonderful, but it does it by hours of use. It's by default set to 300 hours. Should I do it by the calendar, or should I do it by the clock? Uh, I would use the reminder to be either the calendar and the clock and the reality to be visual feedback and inspection. So when I change a filter, I go in, I pull it off, and I've got a four-inch, one of those filter fat ones, and I write on it with a magic marker what date it is. I slide it in there. And then typically, depending upon the time of year, so for example, in the springtime when there's pollen flying around and it's window opening time, I might change that filter every four to six weeks because there's a lot of pollen flying around excuse me through the windows of my house doors opening and closing because i'm working outside and all that Uh, but in the winter when i typically don't even open the doors or windows and there's just not a whole lot of particulate matter flying around inside my house it might be four months before and and sometimes i just uh you know visually i check it you know there have been some really quiet months we might be away a good bit it might be four to five months six months before i change the filter but i do visually check uh whether i think 300 hours is really fast i think they're trying to sell you filters number one but uh, there's two other ways that happens one is either the calendar or the hours i like the operating hours better 
but I might run them out. I mean, you have to figure out how many hours your furnace runs. You know, some of the electronic thermostats will tell you how many hours it ran heating, how many will run cooling if you wire it up through your Wi-Fi thing. I know Honeywell has a feature like that says, well, you your furnace ran this many for heating and this many for cooling and all that. But uh, for me, hours of operation is far more reliable, but both of those, whether hours of operation or calendar months or days, you're still the smartest guy in that block. So your eyes and your own judgment of, you know, well, am I going into the spring? It's like, well, I'll change it now because I'm probably going to be gone for a while, that sort. So it's all, you're the best judge of that, frankly. Sure. So technology is wonderful, but your eye is still a better judge. It's like business policy. If your policy is this, I still expect you um, as an associate of this company to make a smart decision right there at that moment. Policy is for guidance, but not black and white decisions. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I've, I've always, once I replace the filter, I'll always tear off the uh, outer tag showing the, the model number, the size of it. And like you say, use the magic marker, put the date on it. And I tape that to the side of the furnace, so every time I go down there, I see that. I know when I've changed it. Yeah, see, so you're smarter than me. I have, to, I have to open it up to oh. see that. You're way smarter than I am. No. Well, I mark <laughs> on it as well. Uh, that way, if it falls off and it gets thrown away, I know I have a secondary way. But yeah. tertiary, with this yeah. reminder within the app, uh, you can also put comment. And so I put the size of the filter in there, too. Oh, wow. So if I'm at a local hardware store and I think, oh, I need a new filter, I can pull out my app and realize, oh, I need a 20 by 25, and I don't have to guess. Wow. Five years from now, they're going to ship you a filter every X amount of time, you know, as your app says, yeah, it's probably filled. So that's where this, that's you know. right. <laughs> yep. Whether you need Big it or not. Coming. Amen, brother. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, Good question. Thanks for the call. Right. Thank you. Bye now. Uh, and, and when do I change my furnace filter? The answer is when it needs to be changed. But that means you need to check it. And I like the way Don does it with the tape on the outside of the furnace. He just writes on that date of when the last time. Or some people uh, will write down the change date. So if I'm January 1st and I want to change this three months from now, I might write down April 1st. So some people like to put the change date. But if you use a date, label it. Say change date or last changed. Um, because then when my spouse comes down and say, like, well, I want to change the furnace filter the you know the air smells funny so anyway that's an important thing too uh, let's see what's cooking next with my friend uh, uh vidya vidya scott mosby here KMOX. welcome to the uh voice of st louis how can i help you this fine day uh, we have a sprinkler system outside and when at, at one station i think it's from three to four whatever it is uh it makes um, loud knocking sound inside the house oh yeah like, and uh, here's, you're not alone, you're not the first, and you're not the last. Uh, video, what is happening is there is a valve outside that has a um, electric on-off switch. And when there's no electric, the spring pushes it closed and doesn't let water pass. Uh, so when the electrical charge, usually 12 or 24 volts, goes to that valve, it the magnet opens that switch 
So the bottom line here is you have a almost worn out um, valve out in the yard as part of the irrigation system and that spring is wearing out, I would suggest a phone call to your irrigation maintenance company uh, and tell them what's happening and tell them which one, if you can figure out that it's station number three or station number five, uh, that just cuts the amount of time they have to charge you for to go find it. Um, but it, it's not uncommon, and it uh, it's usually fairly easy to fix. Uh, the bad news is all the rest of the valves are the same age. So you may wind up over the next four or five years changing another valve in two years and then another one in two as you go around and replace most of them. But the ones that run on and off most often uh, are the ones that wear out first. So it's probably and most commonly just one of those irrigation valves in the ground outside underneath one of those plastic tub things. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, good question. Thank you for the call. Scott Mosby here, home improvement. Again, uh, irrigation systems, a little bit unusual, but you know what? Not unusual. If you've ever heard those things hammer because they uh, say the pressure raises in your neighborhood. So you normally get 60 pounds or 65 pounds PSI in your neighborhood coming from the water company. Well, what if they turn the water pressure up to 70 or 75? All of a sudden, you've got a valve that used to shut off, and these uh, electronic valves are in our washer, washing machine, our uh, uh, dishwasher machine, uh, anything that has an auto open and close water shutoff. That's where these things are. And when you raise the pressure, those springs now that used to close solidly may not. And once you get them bouncing back and forth, um, I mean, you can really um, lose some sleep. It is, it is, uh, it's pipe hammer, but instead of the pipe hammer coming from something inside your house, it will sound like there's something in your house and, and kudos to video because it, it takes a while to figure out where in the world is that, what happens around my house. So she's a good, uh, figure out or good sleuth, uh, uh, troubleshooter. So anyway, stay tuned. A lot of things coming here on KMOX. Great afternoon. Uh, it's a wet one here in the middle of the country. Thank you for joining me on KMOX and I will talk with you next week. Lots of things to talk about. Remember, you can sign up for either the blogs, visit, uh, things on MosbyBuildingArts.com. Talk to you next week.